Verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This morning we will look at the first sign miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ, his earthly ministry. And in it we see the first six disciples who also followed Christ here in the first week of his public ministry. Up to this point, we see that Peter, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, John, the author of this gospel, and his brother James are his first followers. Some of them witnessed the public, powerful preaching of John the Baptist. As John stood out in the wilderness and he preached, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And after hearing that great proclamation, John and Andrew followed Jesus. As they followed him, he turned and he asked them, and he, I'm sure with piercing eyes, What is it you are seeking? And after spending the rest of the day with the Lord, they came out of that meeting concluding that they had just spent whatever certain amount of hours it was with the promised Messiah. They leave from there. Andrew first goes and finds his brother Simon. John then goes and finds, finds his brother James saying, We have found the Messiah. Andrew, as you know, when he brings his brother, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, but you will be or become Peter. You will become a rock. Here's Jesus prophetically speaking as to what this man would become, what he would make him to be. And then Philip later on goes and finds Nathaniel. Remember, Jesus went to Philip and he said, simply said, Follow me. And he followed him. In response, he goes on and he finds Nathaniel. There's a whole lot of finding going on there in the first chapter, amen? And Jesus is finding them all. But when Christ found you, you couldn't contain it. But you had to go and you had to say, What? I found God. When in reality, he found you. Nathaniel stands before the Lord. Jesus looks into the depths of his soul. He said, Nathaniel responds, How do you know me, Lord? And he said, 
Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael responds, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus went on to tell him you would see greater things than these. That he, Jesus, referring to himself, was the ladder from earth to heaven and from heaven to God, from God to man. He was the only access to God the Father. These men rejoice. They're in awe. And he says, this is the first of the great things that you will see. Nathaniel was overwhelmed with the fact that he could see into the depth of his soul. That he knew what he was meditating on, thinking about whatever the case, when he was under that fig tree, the Lord saw to the depth of his soul. And he, th- and he said basically, if you think my omniscience is almighty, you have seen nothing yet. This is the first of many great things that you will see. And then, here it is, the official launch of the Lord Jesus Christ and it's at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. This is where it all begins. The official public ministry of the Lord. And it is in this very glorious and very familiar passage of Scripture that we see Christ's departure from family ties. There's a departure here that takes place as we will see. And he becomes completely subordinate to his divine mission completely subordinate to the will of the Father. Not that he hasn't been up to this point, but this is the official beginning of his public ministry. The goal? Jerusalem. The goal? Calvary of Jerusalem, the cross. And these men, their lives would be radically changed in the three years that were to come. But you know, when Jesus was in full submission to the will of the Father... He was invited to all kinds of gatherings. He was invited to dinners, to parties. To He would pass through the marketplaces. He was invited to weddings. Wherever he went, official or not, he transformed lives. And in the midst of all that company, you can always see Jesus full of joy. I just see the countenance of Christ as I read Scripture just full of joy, full of joy in in submission to the will of the Father. I'm just I'm sure it radiated from his face. And that would be a lesson for us. You know, there's so many joyless, thank, thankless, long-faced, bitter Christians that need to wake up, amen, and understand the substance of our joy, an everlasting relationship with our Lord and Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. But wherever he went, he transformed lives. We, we understand that. And it's this wedding that begins, as I said, his public ministry, right here in the midst of the most joyous celebration there is on earth, and that is the celebration of marriage. The marriage covenant. The ceremony. Not only does the Lord's ministry, earthly ministry, begin with a wedding, we know that the culmination of all of his earthly redemptive work will be finalized at a wedding. And if you're in Christ, you're going to be there. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation chapter 19, Brett opened with it this morning, verse 7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. May we grow 
as Christians in the joyous anticipation as we learn through the word of God this morning and that which awaits us. Let's pray. Father, we are forever grateful, I hope, in all that you've accomplished on our behalf. We thank you for interceding for us. We thank you for taking our place on the cross, suffering the wrath of the Father. We thank you for opening our eyes, enabling us to believe. And I pray, Lord, that this morning that your church, your people, would be edified by your living word. And Lord, for anyone here who does not know you, I pray that you would radically transform their soul from deadness into life. Is you, Lord, open their eyes of blindness and enable them to see and their deafness, enabling them to hear who you are and what you've done. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, now as we look at this narrative in chapter 2, we're going to look at four points of focus that are within this narrative. and They're, they're outlined in your bulletin. The, the first is the place. The second is the problem. The third is the provision. And number four is the purpose of the provision that's made. And first we look at the place. Verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Now here we have the third day or some of your translations may say after three days. This simply means day three after the calling of Nathanael. So from the point of Nathanael's call, these men followed Christ up the Jordan right into Cana of Galilee, which was eight miles north of Nazareth. And they enter into this little village. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. His family was from Nazareth. He provided his carpentry skills, I'm sure the best that there's ever been in the city of Nazareth, town of Nazareth. But in this day, weddings were the biggest celebration of the day. They would often last seven days. Not like we do. We just roll in, we do the wedding, we do the reception. The couple goes on a honeymoon and we go home. These weddings lasted for seven days. Not all of them. It depended on how much money the family had, but at least for two days. But typically up to seven days, they'd get married on Wednesday, would kick off with a large feast. Then there would be the ceremony. And people who were invited would take time off of work. They would do everything possible to see that their flocks were cared for and whatnot so that they could, could participate in this most joyous earthly celebration. A wedding. A marriage. And the couples that were to be married had been engaged for quite some time. For in that day, the families would choose and pick basically who was going to be married to who. So here was this long-awaited anticipation of this glorious, celebrated day. For finally, as they would wait, for the procession. And the procession was a big, big deal. And a good description of a bridal procession in biblical times is found in a second century writing that says, and I quote, The bride was gathered with a large escort of friends to a predetermined point of meeting with her bridegroom, who also came out with his friends and his brothers to meet them with tambourines and musicians and many weapons. <laughs> Sounds romantic, amen? So you have the bride and her group, the, the groom and his group, and they would proceed to meet at a predestined point 
these large entourage and tambourines and singing and making melody and swords on their sides, some but not all. This is simply a miniature imitation of the royal wedding of King Solomon. If you look at Song of Solomon or follow along, chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, it says, Who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchants' fragrant powders? Behold, it's Solomon's couch with 60 valiant men around it, of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of the fear of the night. Of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a palanquin. He made it of pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seat of purple, its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. Big deal. A very big deal. Now the groom in this day would wear a diadem or a metal headband on, around his forehead or a garland of flowers twisted and bound into the form of a wreath on his head. That was the groom. The bride would first of all would be he heavily veiled and she would also wear an ornamental head dressing and with garland of flowers. She'd be dressed in very bright colors and she'd be adorned with jewelry. And this jewelry either came from her family or the jewelry came from her groom-to-be. So this is what she would be adorned with on that day. And there's beautiful imagery of that in Isaiah 61.10 that says, I will gladly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Now, as I said, each one would have been, have been carried to this particular meeting place. The two parties would meet. The bride would be lifted up into the carriage, if they had it, of the, of the, of the groom. And then both parties would come together and they would carry this couple all over town, light these torches, hit the tambourine, sing, make melody. It was a joyous celebration all throughout town. Heavy, heavy deal. Long awaited for. Almost like royalty. The couple would get treated as royalty for this week. The most... The greatest part of their life, if you can imagine. You grow up in a lot of these peasant type of villages. I mean, this is the greatest celebration you would ever partake of, especially if you were the bride or the groom. Unforgettable. Very, very important. They were just... Uh, friends and family just make a very, very big deal over these folks. Now, as we go to weddings here in the West, the bride is the prominent figure. If this is a wedding ceremony right now, you would hear the organist, you know, right? We would all stand up, we would turn, and we would watch her walk down the aisle. In the Middle East, the groom was the featured attraction. Now here, the only attention the groom gets is a wink from his mom. <laughs> But in this day, he was the focus. And that's the picture we see of Jesus Christ, who is our groom. The church is the bride, but the focus is on the groom, you see. The focus is not on the bride, it's on the groom. And we 
anticipate his imminent arrival. Amen? Or we ought to. So the groom is the featured attraction. Very, very big deal. And eventually, after being carried all about town, the couple would retire to the wedding chamber or their, or their tent, that tent of meeting, wherever it was, and they would enter in to consummate their marriage. And then the guests would leave, finally. They would go back to their places, their homes, wherever they were staying, but the celebration, as I said, would last for up to a week. So they would come back the next day, they would celebrate throughout the day. People who couldn't make it for all of the day, if they had work and they lived in the area, they would come for the evening celebration. Night after night after night. This is the kind of wedding that John is describing for us in John chapter 2. This is just a portion of what goes on at one of these huge, great celebrations. Verse 2 says that both Jesus and his disciples were invited to this wedding. Now, since Jesus and his, mothers and his mother and his disciples were invited, it's very likely, and it suggests that this was a close family friend or a relative. So here they are, and we'll see why later on. But Jesus bringing in his new disciples, we know that they didn't receive some invitation three months prior. They just started following Jesus. But you know, in the Middle East, no one ever seems to have a problem with a few extra guests there, right? You say, just come on in. They receive you with open arms, a big old kiss. Now you're part of the family. Let's go. This is great. Let's celebrate together. Jesus, in his ministry... Now, we know that John the Baptist was more of a recluse, amen? He was out in the wilderness. He took, had taken the Nazarite vow. He had long hair. He ate grasshoppers. He wore uh, a, um, a, a camel's coat. He had a leather belt, and he's preaching, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Jesus, on the other hand, in his public ministry, participated in all kinds of events and went into all kinds of homes and associated with all kinds of people. Now, for hypocritical people... Whatever, whether you're a recluse like John or you're a socialite like the Lord Jesus Christ himself, hypocrites will always find something to point out. Because they're hypocrites. They, when, as soon as a hypocrite begins to become exposed, he begins to accuse. In Matthew 11, verse 18, Jesus said, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's what hypocrites do. They'll come into the church. They'll begin to get convicted to the soul with the word, which shows that there are real problems with Jesus because he is the word. So they'll point out methods or whatever the church is doing or certain peoples or the pastor or whatever, and they'll say that they have a problem with the manner in which things are done or with the individual, but the real problem is with Christ if the word's being taught there. The real problems with Christ. In Luke 15, 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. You know, when Jesus entered into inner nor in any normal experience of that day, be it a celebration, be it a dinner, be it a wedding, a social gathering in the marketplace, place, passing through the marketplace, whatever the case was, whatever the situation was, his presence sanctified the situation now. Amen? It sanctified. It set that situation apart because the Holy One was there. The Holy One was present. 
You know, Jesus went on to do many, many miracles in those places. And not everyone became a follower of Christ. The majority were not convinced in the depth of their soul by the miracles that they saw. Most of them went out and followed him no more, as we will see as we study through the Gospel of John. But with all of that said, what a blessing this couple received with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ himself at their wedding. Whether or not they realized it that day, let me tell you something. After the resurrection, can you imagine? He was with us. He was at our wedding. He multiplied the wine. He produced what was gone. Unbelievable. So here's Jesus at a wedding. It's interesting that Jesus begins his ministry in a wedding. Jesus Christ sanctifies marriage. We see it. God intended and designed it in creation, in, in the beginning of creation with Adam and Eve. He said that it is not good that man should be alone and he provided for man a helpmate and they together became what? One. And what God has joined together, he said, let not man do what? Separate. God the Father ordained it. Here's God the Son sanctifying it in the presence of a wedding. Marriage is an honored, sanctifying work of Almighty God Himself. Hebrews 13.4 says that marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. God invented the sexual relationship between a husband and a man. He invented it and He said that bed is undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. God's model of marriage is not to be broken. That's why Malachi 2.16 says God hates divorce. So here's Jesus, very interesting, just an interesting point. He's kicking off his earthly ministry at a wedding. Not only is is it a wonderful picture as to what God thinks about marriage and the ceremony and the vows and the commitments made into marriage, but also our relationship to Him. He's the groom. We're His bride. And He wants that to be a holy union, an everlasting union. Now, getting back to this couple. Instead of a honeymoon which we typically do. We take off. We go to wherever you go. This couple, after their night together, would have open house for a week. Okay, so you would have... This is a joyous celebration. Us in our culture, we look at that as having people in your hair. But to them, this is, this is something you wanted. You wanted these people here to celebrate together. This is a community celebration. Now, with that little bit of background in your mind as to the depth of this experience and relationship in this celebration, we can focus on point number two, and that's the problem. The problem is they ran out of wine. When they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, at this wedding, at this celebration, at this week-long celebration, food and drinks were provided for all the guests. Wine was essential. Wine was essential. Wine was a dietary staple of the day. Now, a lot of people think, well, you know, wine in Jesus' day didn't have alcohol in it. and You know, it did too. 
And that's the reason it was diluted with water because in this culture, drunkenness was totally looked down upon. But also in this culture, wine symbolized a joyous celebration. Psalm 104 verse 14 says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Isaiah 55 1, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. To the Jewish mind, wine symbolized joy. There was a rabbinical saying in that day that said, Without wine, there is no joy. So imagine this couple dreaming about their ideal wedding, anticipating the day. They, they have all of these guests, all of these friends, all of these people, all of this entourage being marched around, treated like royalty. There's food, but they run out of wine. That was a cultural no-no in that day. That would be equivalent to one, some of us in here organizing a wedding. Let's just say it's your wedding. And here you are. You have all of these guests, all of this family. They fly in from all over the place. We do the wedding ceremony. We go to this big grand hotel somewhere, all decorated out, all beautiful, real silver, placings on each table. It looks glorious. And then we all get in line to eat, and halfway through, you totally run out of food. That would be humiliating. That's what it would be like to run out of wine at a wedding like this. Unheard of. Running out of wine would haunt you the rest of your life. Not just as a, lacking, a laughing stock, but this would be a very shame-filled experience. Very bad. So, wine was very emblematic of joy. And this was expected at a wedding. As I said, this is a cultural staple dietary drink that everyone expected and everyone partook of. And here they ran out. Now, there's a little application here. The joy of wine or the, quote, wine of life without Christ, if you're without Christ, joys of this life will always, always, always run out. You can run trying to fulfill yourself, your desires, be it visual, sensual, intellectual joys of life. None of them will endure. You go out into this world system, it hooks you and it pulls you in. It'll give you the best buzz that it can give for a time but it runs out. It runs out. Nothing lasts in this life. People are looking for happiness, amen? If you're in Christ now, what you look for prior to Jesus Christ when he found you was probably happiness. But it's important to note that happiness has to do with happenings. What's going on? What's going around you? What's going on around you? About your surroundings, your activities, what you can get from those things. That produces happiness. It'll never produce joy. Never. Jesus said in John 15, He said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love and your, what? Joy will be made full. So, wine signified joy. And they ran out of joy at the wedding. 
They ran out. Now, it's also important to note at this point, you should have no picture in your mind of this wedding being some drunken festivity with a bunch of crazed maniacs running around drunk out of their mind. As I said earlier, drunkenness was a disgrace among the Jews in this day. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says that wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And if he's not wise, he is then a fool. Proverbs 23, 31. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup. You know, like the people who pretend like they know what they're doing. Ah, yes. Mmm, oh, exquisite. Some people know what they're doing. Most people don't. I think it's just a big show. Because at last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. You ever been there? Come on, somebody, let's be honest. <laughs> it's turning you into a maniac is what it does. Oftentimes, the reason I say that is because oftentimes, oftentimes compromised Christians will use this text to justify their little party life. That's what they do. You know, Jesus drank wine and he multiplied wine at the wedding and created it out of nothing. But the quantity was commonly restricted so that drunkenness wouldn't occur. That was the whole point. You couldn't purify water in that day like we can today, so they would mix it with wine. And that became the common drink of the day. That's how they would quench their thirst in that day. But when you would crush grapes and so on, it would, especially in that heat, it would ferment quickly. So they would dilute it to water. Two parts, three parts water to one part wine. Today's drinks are mixed and fermented for the purpose of getting you drunk. Right? The alcohol content is off the chart. You know, the Bible doesn't forbid drinking. We're not going to say that, but the Bible certainly forbids drunkenness. Be ye not filled with wine, which brings forth dissipation, but be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's no reason to justify a party life if you, no one in this church, if you know someone, who attempts to justify their drunken little party life with John chapter 2. There's no room for it. For the Christian... Yeah, are we free? Absolutely. But let us be certain that we do not become a stumbling block to anybody. Amen? May we not become a stumbling block to anybody. So they run out of wine. Big ordeal going on here. In verse 3, when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus informs, is informed by his mother that they're out of wine. Now, this reveals for us that it's very likely that Mary was a very close friend to the bride or the bridegroom here. So it was either a relative or perhaps a close friend. And it's very possible that she had something to do with organizing and getting everything ready and participating and serving the people of this wedding. That's how she knew that they were out of wine. So she comes urgently to the Lord and says, they've run out. It's interesting that she doesn't go to Joseph, her husband, which reveals for us that he was likely dead by this time. We don't see or hear of him after Luke chapter 2. They flee to Egypt. 
After Herod ransacks Bethlehem, they come back. That's where they raise him. He's, he's subject to them. And then after that, we see him in the temple at 12 years old. We don't hear him from him again. So he's likely dead. And according to God's sovereign plan, Jesus remained or took over the livelihood and took over care of the family until he was 30 years of age, till he began his public ministry. So Mary was probably very... She, she probably often went to Christ to take care of needs. Therefore, she goes to him. They ran out. And Jesus responds. And he said, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not come. At first read, this seems cold. Amen? It does. At first read, this seems like a cold response. But when he uses the word woman, now if we were to compare it to classic English, it would mean be equivalent somewhat to ma'am or lady, especially lady. The word woman he uses here is the same term that he uses when he's on the cross, beaten beyond recognition, a bloody pulp, dying on the cross, Mary standing before him, John the Apostle standing next to her, and he, in John 19, 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. She's saying, he's saying to Mary, Behold your son, John. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Now tradition tells us that John remained in Jerusalem with her until her death. Then he went on to Ephesus and then he was delivered to the island of Patmos and penned the Gospel of John and his three epistles and the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's Christ on the cross concerned about Mary with all that he was going through at the moment. So we're going to see there that this is definitely a much more distant term than is mom, mommy, or mother. Amen? This is a distant term. But there's a point that's being made. This was a respectful manner in which way someone would address a woman in that day. Jesus addresses the woman at the well with the same term in John chapter 4. But if Jesus would have called her mother, he would have been emphasizing his human relationship to her. But he doesn't. By addressing her as woman, he emphasizes his divine relationship. Here it is, is the Son of God. The Lord's private family purpose in his life to them and towards them is over. It's done. The Son of God was beginning his eternal purpose. Therefore, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And you. So there's a, trans, there's a transition being made here in the relationship for Mary from mother, here it is, to disciple. From mother to disciple. For Jesus, it was from son to savior. Now Jesus always knew his purpose. Don't misinterpret that. Jesus always knew his purpose, but now it was to become public. So there had to be that separation. So Jesus asked her, what does your concern have to do with me? He's saying, what business is that of ours? Or literally, what to me and to you? 
In other words, what are you, dear lady, going to tell me, the Son of God, that I must do? May we not presume upon or tell the Lord what we think He must do in our situation. Amen? But may we pray, not my will, but thy will be done. As we plead and beg and pray on the behalf of other people. Now, the tone is not rude, but it is abrupt, no doubt about it. It's very abrupt. It's not callousness on the part of the Lord. Mary, just like every other person, must must come to him as the promised Messiah and the Lamb of God. Nobody, be it the disciples or even Mary herself, dare to assume as being on the inside of God's divine plan and purpose for his divine Son. Nobody. Everyone else has fallen humanity, including Mary. Now, this was certainly very difficult for Mary, I'm sure. She nursed him. She taught him. She held his little hands and helped him learn how to walk. When he would fall down, she wiped his little hands off. She was there to teach him, to love on him, to hold him. And then probably became very dependent upon him in the absence of Joseph. Now, Mary is indeed to be greatly honored. Scripture says she's greatly honored above all women. Amen? But never, never, ever to be worshipped. Ever. John Calvin comments on this and he says, I quote, It is certain that this saying of Christ openly warns men not to transfer to Mary what belongs to God by superstitiously exalting the honor of the maternal name in Mary, lest any excessive honor paid to his mother should obscure his divine glory. It's for him and him alone that we worship. We don't worship through anybody. We go straight to him. Not Mary. She was a sinner as she declared herself saved by grace. So, he is moving away from these family relationships and what's being emphasized now is his earthly mission. His earthly mission. Now, the distance that Jesus sets between his mother and himself is to be seen in light of the cross. Notice Jesus said, my hour has not come. Now later on in John's ministry, in Mark chapter 3 and verse 21, the family thought that he was going mad. In verse 21, he's in the midst of his ministry, and it says, but when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And then in Mark chapter 3, verse 31, And then his brothers, Jesus' brothers, and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him. And they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my mother and my sister. So again, the distance here that is being set must be interpreted with the cross in view. His ultimate eternal mission. His atoning work on that cross for all who will ever believe. Now Jesus said seven times in this gospel, 
that my hour has not come. Now we know that many times they attempted to take Jesus. You remember they attempted to throw him off a cliff. They attempted, they wanted him dead. But they couldn't because his hour had not come. When you get to John 12, you get to John 13 and John 17, it's all the same night. Three times Jesus said the hour has come. Jesus said no man, no man takes my life. I lay it down freely. But he also said I'm going to be delivered into the hands of man, crucified, and I'm going to raise the third day. All under his sovereign power. Now, as I've been meditating on this this week, this, kept, this picture kept being drawn in my mind. When Jesus said to Mary, my hour's not come, I imagine that there was this great pause. She's looking dead into his eyes as he's looking dead into her eyes. And I imagine that everything that she had witnessed in the past going back 30 years was passing before her mind, resonating deep within her heart. From the angelic visit of his birth in Luke 2.19, Mary's response, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. From the words of Simeon in the, in the temple when Jesus was being dedicated in Luke chapter 2, verse 33, and Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken to him. At 12 years of age in the temple, they go to Passover. They go to the feast of the Passover. They leave and they would leave, <clears throat> travel in large caravans, so they leave the temple and they leave Jesus behind accidentally. They do a day's journey. They realize, oh, but the Son of God, He's gone. So they rush back to the temple. They're looking all over town for Him. They go to the temple. There's Jesus in the temple expounding the truth of His Father to the most greatly educated men of the day. He says, did you not know? You've worried us so greatly. Jesus said, did you not know I must be about my father's business? And in Luke chapter 12, verse 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. I personally imagine that all of that stuff was just resonating in her mind at that moment when he said, my hour has not come. I'm sure many things passed through her mind. Maybe she recognized the fact that she's no longer looking into the eyes of her son, but she's looking into the eyes of her Savior. Without doubt. And notice her response. Her response was based upon Jesus doing the will of the Father. I imagine her staring into the eyes of Christ. The light goes on in her head. She turns to the servants and she says, verse 5, whatever he says to you, what? Do it. Mary knew that Jesus would do something. So she says, whatever that something is, do that something. Do it. So, Jesus may have said no in one sense to Mary, but things would get done, but it would be according to His will, according to His plan, and brothers and sisters, according to His timetable. How many of you just labor over the soul of someone, pray over, cry over, weep over, mourn over somebody or something? And every time you come in contact with that individual, it seems like things are getting worse. Right? Who knows how many days they had a celebration? It's only getting worse. We're out of wine. What does that have to do with me and you? My hour's not come. 
Man, may we learn from this faith that God's timetable is His timetable. That we submit ourselves to His timetable. That we subject ourselves to His authority. May we be people who persevere in faith as dependent upon the source of faith rather than becoming embittered toward God when our timetable is not met. Amen? This was very common practice for the Lord, if you remember. We see this even through this gospel. You remember the nobleman's son in John 4? He asked Jesus to come. Jesus didn't go. He said, no, you go. And he went. And the nobleman's son was made better. Mary and Martha pleaded with the Lord, bidding for him to come because her brother Lazarus was sick. Come and heal him. He's terribly sick. Jesus hangs out for a couple more days. And by the time he gets there, he's already in the grave for four days. It seems as though his timing was off, amen? But he raised him from the dead for his glory. For his glory. See, persevering faith lends itself to the timetable and the provider who is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. May we do... May we live in such a way that we submit ourselves to His authority and to His timetable and continue to pray and continue to pound. Amen? Don't stop. Don't become embittered toward God. Keep praying. Keep pounding on the door like the man who pounded on his neighbor's door for bread for his visitor in the middle of the night. Amen? Like the woman who, who, who pleaded and kept pleading with the unjust judge. And finally, because she was being irritating, He submitted to her request. Don't have that picture of God that he gets irritated. God has a perfect timetable and it will be fulfilled. The one that's being changed in the process is you and me. A certain situation I've been pleading over with the Lord, just just praying and crying out to God for, I came in contact with yesterday and it seems like things are getting worse. It hasn't decreased my faith. It's increased my faith. I will continue to persevere with the faith that he's granted me in the first place to persevere with. It's all from him anyway. Guess guess who's prompting me to pray specific prayers for the situation? It's not me. I'm not stirring him up in myself. He is. He's prompting me. The Holy Spirit, as we abide in Him and we're in the Word and we're filled with the Word and we have godly wisdom, He prompts you and leads you how to specifically pray for specific people in specific situations of which He'll fulfill in His perfect specific time. Come on, somebody. Amen. Amen. All the sorrows we face, brothers and sisters, He fully and completely understands. Isaiah 53.3 He is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Isaiah is speaking about the one who is to come, the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. A man of sorrow acquainted with grief. In the context of that, pictures the reaction of men to the Son of God. Rejection. You think Jesus can identify and be acquainted with grief by being rejected by mankind? We studied that in John 1. He came to his own, and his own did not what? Even recognize him. They were so hard-hearted. They wanted nothing to do with him. 
So we see the place, we see the problem. Now we see the provision. Verses 6 through 10. Now there were there sitting six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came, where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. He said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. These stone jars were obviously very large. Altogether, they would hold 120 to 180 gallons of water. They would provide 2,004 ounce cups for whoever was in present company. These pots were used to wash hands, ceremonial cleansing. So they would be set out there and there would be enough for everyone to wash their hands in a ceremonial way. They'd lift their hands up, the water would drip off their elbows and so on, and then they would go eat. It was more for ceremony than it was for hygiene. So Jesus instructs them to take these old tattered stone pots and fill them up. That would have been no easy task. They didn't put it under the hose bib. Right? They didn't break out the hose. They had no faucet. They would have had to carry these. It must have been a large group of servants to carry these out to a well, draw up the water, fill up each container, carry these things back, and then take out whatever they took out and take it to the master of ceremonies, which would have been equivalent to what we know as the best man. Kind of oversaw the whole deal. I mean, what Jesus is about to do here, this is an act of love. An act of love. But still, it was done in His perfect timing. All of Jesus' miracles met a natural need. He could have made the dance, stars dance around. Amen? And the Pharisees wanted Him to do that. He could have made the stars dance and the universe do weird, trippy things and the sun stand still or whatever He wanted to do, but He didn't. That's not how He operated. And then the master of the feast. He distributes, the servants distribute some water to him. And he's amazed at the quality. This is the best of the best, amen? Typically you use the best first. And by the time everyone ate all throughout the eight day, your palate becomes very dull. You're eating and drinking all day. So you take this later on in the day, you don't really even know the difference. But this was so good, he knew the difference. Man, this is the best. You see, that's what Jesus does. He takes the common and he makes it incredible. He takes the dead and he makes it alive. That's what he does. That's his divine work. You're sitting here today saved, amen? I'm standing here before you speaking, which is miraculous in and of itself. That's the grace of Almighty God. That's his work. That's his miraculous event. All for his glory as we'll see. This is the best. Notice though in this miracle, there's no falling down backwards. Notice that? No hollering and hooting. No hysterics. No hocus pocus. No casting out Satan. No binding him and chaining him. He says, go fill up the pots. 
Now take some out and take it to the headmaster. And whether it turned wine to wine when he gave it to him and he drank it, whatever it turned, who knows, it turned to wine. And it was done in a very quiet, common manner. That's it. He didn't lay hands on anything. He didn't cast Satan out. You know what he didn't do also? He didn't say, hey, let me check that first. Right? Okay, good. Go ahead. No. He made commands. The commands were followed. He gave another command. The command was followed. He's glorified. The people get the best of the best. They receive God's grace. This is a grace act. Salvation is a grace act. He makes something out of nothing. We're all sitting here together. Nothings in which he made something out of. Vessels for his glory. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become what? New. If you're in Christ, you're a new creature in Christ. Created anew. Not fixed up. Transformed. Jesus transformed water into wine. Jesus brought you to the reality one day that you are a nothing. And he made you into one of his own. It's the people who think that they're something, they don't realize they're nothing, and they remain steeped in their sin and unbelief, and they're destined for hell. We're the vessels that take the water out. The living water, amen? We're vessels. We ought to be filled up with living water to go out and let the living water pour forth from these vessels. And God will turn it into joy for the soul. He turns it into the wine. That's His work. May we be filled up to take it out. Amen? So He uses the natural to do the supernatural. He wants to use you to do the supernatural, believer. He just wants you to be a vessel that will say, Yes, sir. Amen? The servants He told to go and they went. The servants he told to ladle some out and take it to the headmaster. They ladle it out and they went. Jesus does this throughout his ministry. He puts mud on a blind man and he tells his disciples to go take him to the water and wash the mud off. And then the man sees. He multiplies loaves and fishes and he tells his servants, his disciples, to hand them out. He dis- they distribute. Jesus is standing at the grave of Lazarus and he says to those around him, roll the stone away. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. Jesus doesn't need help rolling a stone away, amen? He does not need help. He does not need anyone to ladle out any water. But for some great, grand reason, he has chosen us to be his representatives and his vessels to carry the living water our main purpose is to carry the living water because he's turned water in you into joy the wine of joy life that's what we are may we go we get to participate in this great transformation we take the living water out what greater miracle is there than seeing a sinner transformed into a saint there's, as far as I'm concerned, there's no greater miracle than that. Raise someone from the dead. That's nothing. That is nothing.
compared to taking a sin, sinfully dead soul and seeing him transformed to become a child of God. And only he can do it. But we have the privilege to partake in ministering the living water of the word. So may we be servants that simply say, yes, master. Yes, master. And we will get to partake in seeing needs met, lives transformed in joy, filling the souls of the joyless. What a joy. Amen? What a joy. Water carriers. And then finally the purpose, verse 11. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested what? His glory. And his disciples believed in him. Everything is for his glory. Everything. It's all for his glory. Your salvation is for his glory. My salvation is for His glory. Us getting to participate, joining together on a Sunday, leading worship, singing songs together is all for His glory. The preaching of the Word is for His glory. Going out, evangelizing, going out and praying for people, it's all for His glory. This sign miracle was done for His glory. And that was the purpose, to manifest it. And then the, the effect of the miracle marked the beginning of his ministry. And it provided his disciples with greater what? Faith. With greater faith. Do, do the stories that you read in Scripture encourage you and grow you in your faith? Or do you look at this as old, stale stories? See, remember, this word is living and it's active, right? If you're in Christ, you've been made alive. And this word ought to have a great effect. It ought to produce joy. It ought to produce greater measures of faith. And that's what it did here. His disciples believed. This was an authenticating sign as to who Christ was and why He was here. The first notice, this was the first of signs. The beginning of signs, your translation may say. First sign or beginning of signs also means primary because it points, check this out as we're closing, it points to the dispensation of grace and the fulfillment that Jesus is initiating here. Moses' first miracle before Pharaoh, turning water into what? Blood, representing the law. Jesus' first miracle, turning water to wine, represents grace. He's the fulfillment of the law. He shed his blood for us because we could never meet the standard of the law, ever. And that ought to produce joy in the soul of those who are saved because of what he did. So a sign always points to something deeper, to some deeper truth beyond itself the, the sign always points to a substance greater than itself. The fact that the disciples believe suggests that true followers of Jesus, Jesus Christ, be it here or in our day, saw more in the signs than the general onlookers, you see. Many, many masses of people saw the same signs and miracles. And it's interesting that no one at this wedding just drops everything and follows Christ. Now the servants knew. 
I'd have been dropping water pots, boy, pushing water pots out of the way. I just want to follow you. We don't know the story, but it's just interesting. Those who were drawn by the Father came to Him. They followed Him. They remained with Him because they were in Him and He was in them. Now, there will be, as we read in the beginning of the service, a great wedding ceremony with Christ for His church, known as the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 19, verse 9 says, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. See, if you're in Christ, you've been invited because your name's on the list. And you know your name's been on the roll since before the foundation of the earth. We're going to be there together. The marriage supper of the Lamb. You think this was a celebration? You think Solomon's wedding was a celebration? The wine will be flowing on this day. Jesus said he will not partake until what? He will not partake of wine until the marriage supper of the Lamb. So wine will be flowing. The joy will be full because the substance of all joy will be present. Our groom, we, his bride, all for his glory. Anticipate that day, brothers and sisters. If you're not in Christ here this morning, the invitation of living water has been presented to you. Only he can take it and turn it into joy to your soul. You must submit your life to His authority. Not only agree with who He is and what He's done, but repent of your sin, repent of your unbelief, and surrender your life to His Lordship. And you too will see that the living water will be transformed into the wine of joy for your soul. And your eyes will be opened, your ears will be opened, you will see and hear as other believers see and hear. So today, I invite you to call on Christ plead for His grace to be bestowed upon you to become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we be as believers those stone water pots filled with the living water of Your Word that pours forth the wine of the new covenant proclaiming the blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we remember that all things are according to your precious, sovereign timetable. And God, I pray for myself and these along with me today. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Increase in us the ability to walk by faith. Grant us the grace to pray with wisdom. Grant us the grace to persevere, Lord, on behalf of one another. Grant us the grace, Lord, to see and understand the situations that certain people are in in our lives. And grant us the grace, Lord, to pray with heavenly wisdom, to deal with them with discernment. And we pray for your grace to be bestowed upon those who don't know you in our lives, that you would recreate in them, Lord, life everlasting. We pray for this church that we be holy and set apart for your glory as we anticipate the marriage supper of the Lamb and greatly anticipate the imminent return of our groom, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the earth. And it's in His name we pray. And together we all say, Amen. Amen.